God is good. All the time. time. Welcome to everybody who joins us online each week. Welcome to our CM campus as well. We live in rural Clinton County. Though our property is wooded, it is surrounded by farmland in every direction. During this time of year, combines are out in force to harvest the summer crops, and most days, dust absolutely fills the air. Additionally, this time of year, you never know what you're going to get for weather, right? It can be 50, it can be 95. You just never know what you're going to get. I call it shorts and sweatshirt weather, right? You need a sweatshirt in the morning and shorts by noon, and you need a sweatshirt again by afternoon. But some days, it just gets hotter and smoke. And this year, particularly, it seems like summer is not wanting to give up its grip on us too quickly. As Melissa and I were driving home from a baseball game last weekend, we were driving across a field. It was a cornfield that had recently been harvested, and it was filled with dirt tornadoes. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Just those dirt tornadoes just spinning, and they were absolutely everywhere. Uh, These mini cyclones form when a field has just gotten harvested, so the sun is pounding. The field doesn't have the corn in it anymore to kind of deflect the sun. There's no shade. So all of a sudden, the sun is just pounding on the ground. Sun bounces off the ground, and it superheats the air that is right above the ground. That air begins to form a vortex. It sucks the air up in it. Things begin to spin. And then it takes all the dust and all the chaff from the corn that the combines left behind. It sucks it all up. And you have these little whirlwinds all over the place. A dust tornado is the visible image of an invisible column of air. All right, are you with me? A dust tornado is the visible image of an invisible column of air. Welcome back to Reign of Freedom. This is our verse-by-verse walk through Colossians. I know I've been gone to out of the last three weeks. I was in Dallas one week, Houston one week. You are stuck with me until Thanksgiving. So I will be here with you every week. So that's good. Also, I want you to be in prayer about something because you're a part of this. Uh, Every year, I release a trail guide and... The trail guides are a part of this service because everything I teach and the work I do to prepare for this service will eventually become a book. And those books become trail guides. And so this will be a trail guide that is over 1 Peter. Uh, We dealt with that last year. The trail guide will be released on November 14th nationally and, and all over the place. And I would just like to ask you to be in prayer for these trail guides. Uh, Be in prayer that they touch lives and they impact people. Last month, I got a a text from a good friend of mine who was up in the Chicago area. He was at a breakfast establishment. There were a group of men having a devotion around the table, and they were using my trail guide to the Gospel of John, and I didn't know any of them, hadn't heard any of them. The other fun thing about the trail guides that I don't mind, uh, I don't mind promoting trail guides at all because 
every bit of the royalties, every bit of that goes to Christ Church with the trail guides. So as long as I live, as long as I'm here, that'll happen. Then as long as I live, that'll happen. And after I die, that will happen. All the royalties for the trail guide go to Christ Church. So it's a way that I'm going to continue to support the church long after I'm not here. And I, that's something I'll never regret, unless, of course, it becomes the bestseller of all time, and then I wish I had kept the royalties myself for the trail guides. So this is what's coming up, and I just ask you to be in prayer with me about that as these are released. Invite Resource is going to publish one trail guide every six months, uh, as long as I write them. So we've already got 1 Peter, 2 Peter, Jude in the queue. Uh, they're going to re-release John in two volumes. James will follow that. And of course, at some point, we're going to have Philippians and then Colossians as well. So my hope is that I would love to be able, before I die, to, uh, to do a trail guide for every book in the New Testament. And if I live to be, you know, maybe 190, I might just hit the Old Testament as well. So I am excited to lean back into Colossians. Colossians was written to address the dangerous theological baggage that had accumulated in the church of Colossae during their short five-year history. Paul's task was to encourage what was good in the church and discourage what was bad, keep the sound doctrine in, keep the false doctrine out, but the task is complex because the people don't know Paul. Have you ever been criticized by a total stranger? I have. I've had people come up after church and criticize me, and I didn't know who they were. And what I always say is the same thing. Why would I possibly care what you think? I mean, seriously, why would I possibly care what a total stranger thinks? Uh, so why would the people of Colossae possibly care what Paul thinks? Well, first of all, Paul's kind of famous. You know, I mean, everybody would have heard of Paul, but they didn't know Paul. I don't know about you. I'm very open to critique, but it's going to have to come from somebody that loves me, believes in me, and wants my best. That, that if I don't trust someone well enough to give me advice, I'm not going to trust them well enough to receive critique from them. How's that? So I would never take critique from somebody you wouldn't take advice from. But people who truly love you, they'll love on you, but they'll also shove on you from time to time. And, and that's what I'm always looking for. So the church in Colossae, they're not quite sure Paul loves them. They don't really know Paul. How much are you going to take from people you don't know that love you? Well, frankly, that's yet to be seen. Now, sometimes when you're on a hike on a trail and you take a long break, uh, you, you back up just a minute to kind of get reoriented. I, I want to read the first half of this prayer, and then we're going to jump right into the second half. This is 11 and 12, verse 1. We also pray that you will be strengthened with all his glorious power, so that you will have the endurance and patience you need. May you be filled with joy, always thanking the Father that has enabled you to share in the inheritance that belongs to God's holy people who live in the light. Now we're ready to tackle the rest of the prayer. 13 to 14. For he has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. Paul is attempting to move the church from darkness to light. And he wants to make it clear that to do that, they need nothing but Jesus. You see, they had Jesus, but they added a bunch of extra stuff. 
That's why I always say there's nothing wrong with reading books about God, but you need to read the Bible a whole lot more than you read anything about God. You, the Bible is something that just needs to be read. And, and what Paul is saying is, well, all you really need is Jesus. All you really need, you got all this other stuff. You're putting a lot of stock in, but all you need is Jesus. Now, living in what I'm going to call perpetual light is different than moving back and forth between darkness and light. The Colossians were in spiritual darkness. Epaphras shared the good news that brought them into the light. But now it seems to Paul that the clouds are blowing back in. This letter represents a rescue mission uh, in which the church is challenged to move from where they are to where God wants them to be. They must not only be enlightened, they need to learn to live in the light. Have you guys ever had times in your spiritual life where you just got hot spiritually, but you couldn't stay there? You got hot spiritually, but you couldn't stay there. Jeff Abel, who uh, is our technician uh, on some of these Wednesday nights, Jeff and I played ball together for years and years and years, probably a decade and a half. During that time, we might have played 100 games a year. So there's a strong chance Jeff and I might have played 1,500 ball games together. I've seen Jeff get hot. He's seen me get hot, but you don't stay hot forever. There are times that you're just in the zone, but you don't stay in the zone forever. And there are times that we get spiritually hot. But how do we keep that momentum going? That's what Paul is writing about. Once you see the light, how do you stay in the light? Once you get hot, how do you stay hot? When I hear a weather report. They often say things I don't understand. I understand sunny and cloudy, but if it's partly sunny or partly cloudy, I'm not exactly sure how all that goes. But what I have noticed is most days it's not completely cloudy or completely sunny. It's a, it's a little bit of both. So if you think about it, Paul is saying the theological skies above Colosse right now were an overcast. Fogs setting in, Visibility is deteriorating. Paul wants the clouds of false teaching and the excess baggage that that church has somehow accumulated removed so that the church could once again see clearly. So he's trying to burn off the fog, if you will. In a very real sense, when we receive Jesus, we are transferred from darkness of sin into the light of God. The problem in a fallen world is right about the time the weather clears up, storm clouds start banking in again. So Paul is going to give us some context. He's going to give us a metaphor, but he really gives us the gift of four verbs. Four verbs. What are verbs? You remember? Action words. Four action words. So here's what I need you to hear. If we're going to walk in the light, we're going to have to take action. We're going to have to take action. You don't accidentally walk in the light. But let me give you the good news. Jesus already took the action for us. We just need to live in his action. So here are four great verbs. Number one, rescued. To rescue is to save someone from imminent danger or peril. After the fall, humanity found ourselves permanently estranged from God. Because of our rebellion against our creator, we found ourselves hell-bound Without remedy, Christ 
rescued us. We could not rescue ourselves. If you can get out of it yourself, you don't need rescued. If you can get out of it yourself, you don't need rescued. You don't need a rescuer if you, can't get, if you can get out of it yourself. So we were rescued by Christ. Number two, transferred. This is really interesting. To transfer is to shift from one context to another context. You were this, but now you're that. Through his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus gave us the opportunity to be transferred from darkness to light, from hell to heaven. Jesus affected our transfer. Three, purchased. To purchase is to pay in full in such a way as an object that was once owned by one person becomes the property of another person. So it's a formally negotiated change of possession. The blood Jesus shed on a cross at Calvary paid the past, present, and future price for the full sin of humanity. So the price for our forgiveness was purchased in full. And then finally, forgave. To forgive is to have the authority to offer absolution. I've had people from the Catholic tradition uh, chat with me a lot. Somebody told me, uh, maybe six months ago, they said, you know, Reverend Shane, Christ Church is the largest Catholic church in the area. And, and I said, we're not a Catholic church. And they said, I know. And so uh, sometimes people come to me and they'll call me Father Shane. I remember one, uh, one Christmas Eve, I was greeting people at the door and they were leaving and someone said, this was such a beautiful mass, Father Shane. And I thought... I said, well, thank you, my son, because <laughs> I saw that on television. I saw it on television, and it seemed to work just fine. If you were from a tradition where you believed that a priest could offer absolution of sin, then you might walk up to me and want to confess your sins to me. So here's what I need you to hear. Three theological words. I got nothing. I got nothing. You want to confess your sin to me? I got nothing. But let me tell you who has everything. Jesus Christ. He's got everything. I got nothing. He's got everything. He has the power to forgive. God gave that power to forgive to Jesus. And only confession based upon his work can affect the forgiveness of sin. I can't forgive you. But Jesus can. Jesus stated so clearly in 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Isn't that great news? Jesus can get that done. So what can Jesus do? He's our rescuer. He transferred us from a bad place to a good place. He purchased our salvation with his blood, and he has the power to forgive our sin. No wonder they call it good news. No wonder they call it good news. So the lasting effect of this verbal uh, of this verbal rescuage right here is freedom in Christ. So I want you to imagine that you're on a hike and you're going to cross a ravine and you have to traverse a bridge that's in really rough shape. You take a look around and the reality is uh, there's nearly no way not to try to cross the bridge, but the bridge doesn't look good and it's a long way down. So when you're about halfway across, planks below you break, you 
tumble down, you grab a hold of the wires, and you're just sort of dangling there. You're in a bad spot, right? You're, you're in a bad spot. Now, I want you to imagine there's somebody on the other side where, where you wanted to go. They're on that side. They see your predicament. They very carefully get out on the bridge. They reach out a hand, and they pull you to safety. I want you to think about this. There are three things that really happened here. You were in peril, you were rescued, and you were transferred from the place you were to the place you wanted to be. But you couldn't get yourself there. Somebody had to rescue you. They, somebody had to redeem you, transfer you. So you were saved from a bad thing to a good thing. So I want to explore the from and the twos of this passage. The froms and the twos. So in Christ, we are free from slavery. Slavery to what? Slavery to sin. Many people today mistakenly believe that freedom is exercising our will, and freedom is doing what we want to do when we want to do it. They would say that's freedom. I am free when there are no constraints on me whatsoever. I would argue that when there are no constraints on us whatsoever, we have never been in such bondage. My friend Zach Danlop tells a, a wonderful, wonderful story. He and Rachel, when their kids were little, they'd love to camp. And he said every time they went to a camping spot, the kids would just literally hang on their legs. The kids would literally just, just hang on their legs because they were so afraid to get out. And what Zach would do, he would say, okay, kids, come on. He would walk and he'd say, I don't want you to go past this picnic table. And you can't go past this trash can. And you can't get behind the camper. He said by establishing those boundaries, his kids were set free to flourish. They didn't have to hang on to mom and dad's leg anymore because within boundaries, they truly found freedom. Many people today mistake captivity to sin for freedom to sin. They, they mistake this idea that, that, that freedom means I can sin. And because I'm a captive to sin, that makes me free. A lot of people mistakenly think that they're doing what they want to do. And they say, that's freedom. My friends, they're not doing what they want to do. They're doing what sin wants to do. A lot of people say, no, I'm doing what I want to do. I'm free. No, they're not. They're doing what sin wants them to do, and they are a captive. They're anything but free. They're slaves to sin. And we have a word for ultimate slavery, addiction. Addiction. It's when you become an ultimate slave to a thing. So let's take a look at the fact that we were delivered from slavery to sin to freedom from sin. Okay? Number two, condemnation. Condemnation. Condemn is to be damned without recourse. How's that? If you're condemned to die, you are damned without recourse. When my grandkids were little, they would point out to me that I said a bad word at church. And I would always tell them, it's okay at church. And then I thought, I probably need more context, but I'm not going to do it now. 
damned without recourse. Paul describes it perfectly in Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death. That is the price for sin. So anyone who sins, the fair, the just price is death. That is condemned. You are condemned. Without the whole of the thought, it would be an addict of condemnation. Nobody could argue it wasn't righteous and fair and just because it's right there. There's nothing unambiguous about that. Sin will kill you. Can I hear an amen from somebody? Sin will kill you. If you're captive to sin, sin will kill you. That's what it does. It'll kill you. However, we are delivered from condemnation to forgiveness. The wages of sin is death, but... But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So we are also freed from Satan's power. Every ounce of political power in Paul's world rested in the hands of the Roman Empire. It's kind of a big thing today, right? The Roman Empire, but it's kind of talking about it. Let me tell you, it's a really big thing then. Citizenship was prized in the Roman Empire. There were two ways to be a citizen. You could be a Roman and born into citizenship, or you could buy a citizenship, and it's really, really expensive. Roman citizens were at the top of the social order, and frankly, they had more rights than everybody else. You had citizens, then you had regular folks, then you had slaves, and it kind of went down from there. And I would probably argue the difference between a citizen and a regular folk in terms of rights was probably about the same between a regular folk and a slave in terms of rights. I mean, there was a big gap. I don't think that Paul uh, would have lasted a year in ministry had he not been a Roman citizen. I think the only reason they tolerated Paul, who was basically a chronic troublemaker, I think the only reason they tolerated him was because he was a Roman citizen and he had more rights than everybody else. For Paul, you're either a citizen of the kingdom of God or you're a citizen of this world. There are no dual citizenships. You're either one or you are the other. Those who know God are not free. I mean, those who don't know God are not free. They are not free agents. They are captives of a fallen world, and they are governed by Satan himself. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We are delivered from Satan's power to the dominion of God. We are taken from citizenship in the kingdom of Satan to citizenship in the kingdom of God of God. We are transferred from being Satan's possession to becoming God's possession. So to put it theologically, we've been redeemed. We've been redeemed. When I was a kid, we used to sing a song called, I've been redeemed. I've been redeemed by the blood of the lamb. I've been redeemed by the blood of the lamb. I'm filled with the Holy Ghost. I am. All my sins are washed away. I've been redeemed. Uh, Redeemed. Let's take a look at that word because it's, 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 it's really the universal joint that holds all this together. Redemption. What does it mean to be redeemed? To understand the word redeemed, as Paul understood it, we need to backtrack to the Old Testament and uncover its theological and its cultural implications. So lean in with me here because we're going to crack something wide open if you stay with me. In ancient Judaism, reality was viewed from the collective, not from the individual. Is everybody with me? They viewed reality as a collective, not as an individual. Identity was found in fulfilling the obligations of something greater than self. And rank in that greater thing was almost always based upon age, gender, and birth order. 
So I think it's fair to say this. There is no I in the Old Testament. And as it turns out, there is no I in the Old Testament. There's only us. There's only us. And I assure you, anytime there's an us, there's also a them. Always. But there is no I in the Old Testament. My identity was not found in being Shane. My identity was found in being the son of Fred, of the clan of bishops. Uh, That was my identity. Abraham is the patriarch of the Jewish people. Everything we know about God forming a people from which a savior would one day come started with the promise God unilaterally made to Abraham. Now, Abraham's culture consisted of families which formed clans and clans which formed tribes. There's nothing less defining in his world than an individual. There's nothing less defining than an individual. So the clan was a family collective ruled by a patriarch who carried ultimate power, yes, but also ultimate responsibility. It's his job to keep the clan together physically, culturally, spiritually, and economically. Now it's when it gets really interesting. Now it's when it gets really cool. But if a member of the clan or members of the clan If individuals were separated from the clan by famine or war or even driven to the margins by their own actions, a.k.a. the book of Hosea, if they are separated from the clan, it's the patriarch's duty to find them and to bring them back by any means necessary, whether they want to come or not. The act of rescuing and restoring an estranged part of the clan back to the clan is the literal definition of redemption. The patriarch would not only, was not only the master and provider, the patriarch was a redeemer if things went bad. He was a redeemer if things went bad. So it helps us understand the parables of Jesus, doesn't it? It helps you understand the parable about the, 90, about the 100 sheep and one wanders away. Why does Jesus leave 99 to go get the one? Because he's the redeemer. Why, why do you sit and look for a lost coin? Because that person is the redeemer. Why is it so important that a lost son returns? Because the father is a redeemer. So think about redemption The act of rescuing and restoring an estranged part of the clan to the clan is redemption. Jesus is our redeemer. He is the one who finds lost things. He is the one who rescues. He is the one who restores. Jesus' parables are all about redemption. And they're all about putting things back where they belong. We were gods by... We were gods. God created us. God said, this is good. We were gods. We were in God's tribe. We're the God tribe. But by virtue of our sin, we were transferred from God's tribe and we were estranged. Estranged to the point that Satan laid claim upon us. He had the deed. To us. Jesus came to get us back by any means necessary. I need to hear it one more time. Jesus came to get us back by any 
means necessary. Jesus redeems us from the darkness. He transfers us to the light. But how do you stay in the light once you get there? How do you stay free once you've achieved freedom? How do you stay there? I think it's a fair question. And and to, to answer it, Paul offers some staggering claims about the power of Jesus, and we're just going to deal with them at full strength. So if you're taking notes, now's when you do it. These are claims about Jesus. They're staggering. Number one, Jesus is God. How's that for a big start? Jesus is God. Verse 15a, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. And as a little boy, I used to draw pictures of God in church because we didn't have phones. I drew pictures of God in church, and uh, my mom kept one such picture, and it was clear that I was not going to grow up to be an artist, but you could sort of tell what God looks like. He looks shockingly like our pastor. In fact, God had glasses. I'm not sure what the theological implications of my childhood perception of God was a God with impaired eyesight, but apparently it was, and I thought of God being very shockingly similar to our pastor. You know, there's a sense in in the Old Testament that it sure would be helpful if Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, God, if Yahweh, it would have been really helpful if he would have just sort of shown himself. I mean, think about it. The big complaint that everybody always had is, is God. You know, you remember Moses? You know, let my people go, go kind of thing. And he goes, God, you know, who am I going to say sent me? You know, look at all these gods the Egyptians have. You know, some of their gods are like made of solid gold, and they're like 80 feet high. God, how how can you really compete with that? Maybe if you were made of platinum and 200 feet high, that would seem competitive, you know? But God, we don't even know your name. We don't even know your name. They got statues of their gods. We know all the names of their gods. We don't even know your name. And there's always this idea, God, if you would just show yourself, you'd be a little more competitive. And then you get with the Canaanites, you got Baal. You ever see statues of Baal? You ever see the images of Baal? The guy's a dork. I mean, seriously. I mean, you know, you got all these Roman gods and these Greek gods. These dudes are ripped. Baal is a dork. He's just like Pee Wee Herman with a pointed hat is what Baal is. You know, big, long shoes. I mean, Baal is the most weak sauce God you've ever seen to look at. But at least they had something. And so it's like, God, if you just show yourself, if we could just make a little graven image. Lord, surely you wouldn't mind if we just made like a gold bull. Do you remember the Ten Commandments when Moses comes down and the people were suddenly full of bull, right? You know, comes down. Lord, we're just trying to make you more competitive in the open market. God, how can we compete? I guess these gods people can see. So later Israel is in a theophany where God is the king, and you had all the judges. I did a sermon series once on the judges. It got so bad I couldn't even complete it. The last story in the judges is just so utterly depraved, I gave up. So I punted. I did. I I could write a book on the judges. It's called World Gone Crazy. Many of you may remember the series. I didn't finish it because the last story made me want to heave and throw up, and I found nothing redemptive in it. 
So clearly that wasn't working. And so they said, God, we just like a king. And God says, I'm your king. And he said, but we'd like a king like everybody else has. You know, one that could wear a hat. God, could you wear a hat, really? You know, can you really wear a crown? Paul's saying, most unambiguously, you want to know what God with skin looks like? Do you want what you've always wanted, people? Here you go. Take a look at Jesus. You want to know what God has to say? Listen to Jesus. You want to know what God does? Pay attention to Jesus. Jesus is God with skin. That is a massive claim. Claim number two, Jesus was the catalyst to creation. Claim number three, Jesus is supreme over creation. Let's take a look. 15b through 17. He existed before anything was created. And is supreme over all creation, for through him God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones and kingdoms and rulers and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and by him. What are all these things? That's all the stuff the Colossians believe. This is all the stuff they've all gotten swept up in. And what Paul's saying is none of this matters. Jesus is over all of it. None of it matters. I'll be talking to people about faith sometimes. I want to talk about Jesus. They want to talk about dinosaurs. I'll say, here's the deal. Shut up. None of it matters. What I'm talking about is Jesus. They want to talk about religion. Here's the deal. Shut up. We're not talking about religion. I want to talk about Jesus. Paul is saying, yeah, you got all this stuff swirling around. You got all this stuff you're debating about angels in high places and this angel and that angel and all these seen and unseen things. Paul says, cut it out. Cut it out. Cut it out. Let's just talk about Jesus. You see, Jesus wasn't spun off of the triumphant Godhead for Christmas and Easter appearances. Paul argues Jesus existed before time and space. John opens his gospel by saying, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word already existed, and he was with God, and he was God. The Holy Spirit added in is what we call the doctrine of the Holy Trinity. There'll always be a mystery in the Holy Trinity because it's finite beings trying to get our heads around an infinite God. But you need to understand, we're not fully going to get the three in one. We're not fully going to get God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit all in one. I think there are ways that we can think about it. You know, I'm a, I'm a son. I'm a father. I'm a pastor. I have a lot of roles. There's one me. We could look at it that way, but that gets a little suspect. Uh, We can look at H2O, right? Two parts hydrogen, one part oxygen. It can have steam, liquid, or ice form. Three, all the same compound. But there's limits to all that. Orthodox Christians understand we have one God in three roles. Paul is not only putting the person of Jesus Christ as a catalyst for creation. He's saying that Jesus is supreme over all of it. He is supreme over all of creation. Claim number four, Jesus is the head and the church is his body. Jesus is the head and the church is his body. Verse 18, Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He is the beginning supreme over all who rise from the dead. So he is the first in everything. The church of Jesus Christ was founded when the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost and fell upon 120 Christians in Jerusalem. And at that moment, 
The church became the physical presence of Jesus Christ in the world until he returns. In an historical time where the mainline church is a shell of its former glory, where denominations like the United Methodist Church are literally imploding, there's a lot of people today asking who's the head of the church. There's debate going around the country. Is it the bishop? Is it the denomination? Is it the church board? Is it the pastor? Is it the church law? Is it state law? Is it federal law? The answer is none of the above. Christ is the head of the church. Christ is the head of the church. It belongs to him. He is the head. We are the body. He is in charge of everything. He is first in everything, even life after death. So here's what you need to hear. If Jesus isn't the head, you don't have a church. You may have a club, you may have an organization, but you don't have church. Claim number five, Jesus reconciles us to God. We'll stop with this and we'll pick up next week. 19 and 20, for God in all of his fullness was pleased to live in Christ and through him, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. So I need to get this. God cheerfully makes his home in Christ. And in Christ, all is made right. So I'm going to put this into Southern Illinois vernacular. Jesus took care of everything. There's nothing left undone. If Jesus is all God needed, Jesus is all you need. Jesus is God's official reconciler. If you go to a store and you want a can of tennis balls, things are reconciled once you pay for the tennis balls in full. At the moment you're payment is accepted. The tennis balls are no longer the property of the store. They are your property. You are given a receipt to prove it. To reconcile is to restore to harmony. It's to settle. It's to resolve a problem. My problem was I wanted tennis balls. I didn't have them. You have tennis balls. Reconciliation is working it out. Reconciliation is resolution. If you and a friend are cross-threaded and you grab some coffee, and you truly work things out, you have been reconciled. My worst memories concerning the word reconcile has to do with my checkbook when I was a young man. I'm not a math guy. And it doesn't mean I can't do math. I can. It doesn't mean I can't keep good records. It just means I don't. Uh, I have very little interest in a lot of those things. So Reconciling the checkbook was a monthly task that I dreaded uh, every single month. Absolutely horrible. They sent you this thing, and then you, you had to write stuff down, get out of calculators. Utterly awful. And then came Quicken. I, I remember the day Quicken came out. I nearly wept. I was so happy. <laughs> Each month when the bank sent my statement, I simply entered all that information, and the Quicken program did everything else, sort of. The problem was that things still never came out right because I didn't enter the correct information because I tend to round everything off and I forget to enter things at all a lot of the time. So when the program had done its work, I was always between $100 and $300 off every single month, one way or the other. And at that point, Quicken would ask me this question. Do you want to keep working at things to reconcile or would you like to adjust Adjust means give up. Realize nothing good's going to happen and there's no point in putting any more time into this. I hit reconcile never. I hit adjust every single time. 
There's no way to get ourselves reconciled to the penny with God. It doesn't matter how hard we try. We don't have the right kind of currency, and even if we did, there'd never be enough in our account to make the transaction work. Our sin problem keeps us from God, but it is reconciled in Christ. It's reconciled in Christ. He paid the necessary price to get us from where we were to where God wanted us to be. When we hit the adjust button, Jesus makes right what we could never make right on our own. We are saved by what Christ has done, not by what we have done. Paul's message to the Colossians is that all we need to be reconciled with God is Jesus. You don't need anything else, just Jesus. And you want to know why we need nothing more? Because there is nothing.